Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we come to your word that you would be pleased to speak to us and that you would help us to listen in the power of your spirit so that we might know you and how it is that we might be a loving church that experiences genuine unity in Christ. Amen. There's a well-known saying in politics that says, disunity is death. And I think we saw a bit of evidence of that this week in the UK. 45 days in office is not a long time to be a Prime Minister. Uh, the party was disunited when they, when the leader came to, uh, when Liz became the leader six weeks ago, and it seems even more disunited as they look for a new leader. And I expect all of us have experienced disunity in one way or another, whether you've been a part of a team or a workplace or a voluntary organisation where, where people have taken sides. Some people have been part of one group or faction and others have been part of a different group or faction. And from that we get disunity. Often there's one person who might be a faction leader who, who officially or who just unofficially leads that group. Uh, that is the person that everyone goes to when a thing happens. They text them and say, did you see that? Or the whole group comes together officially and says, we need to convene a meeting. Whatever it is, when group A annoys group B or group B annoys group A and all of that happens, well, that's factionalism. That's disunity. And I wonder, as I mentioned that there, whether or not it describes a part of your life in the present or in the past. Does it describe friendship groups at school? Rivalry in a sporting team? A personality clash in a workplace? A conflict in a family? Or a dispute in your community group? Or maybe it's something you've experienced in a church in the past. Or maybe even in the present. Disunity is death. And when it's not dealt with properly, it can be a slow and painful death. In our second sermon from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, we're looking at eight verses. And in these eight verses, we're going to see the whole issue of factionalism and disunity addressed. And it starts like this, chapter 1, verse 10a. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Paul is saying to the church that he founded, I want you guys to be united. I want you to live with harmony as one. I want you to get rid of divisions and factions. I want you to live in harmony. Is this a message that our church here needs to hear right now? Have I chosen this topic because I think we are divided? No, I don't think we are at all. I don't think we're divided. I don't think we have a problem with unity. And in fact, because of God's great kindness to us, I think this may well be the most united church I've ever been in in the entire life of my Christian life. It is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful gift from God. But if you've ever been in a church that's been seriously divided, you'll know how horrible it can be. Disunity is death. And a disunited church can feel like hell. But I don't think our church is like that. We're a church that feels genuinely united and it is a beautiful gift. But it's not just something nice to aim for. The Apostle Paul here actually says as a command, 
I command this with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, be unified in the name of Jesus. It's a big thing and they need to follow it. It's not just a case of, yeah, nah. He wants all of them as brothers and sisters to be a healthy church family. He wants them to live in harmony with one another, to agree with one another in what you say, as another version puts it. He wants them to be unified, to sing off the same song sheet, to beat to the same drum, to march in line together. That is what he is commanding them. So how does it look like? How unified do they need to be? How broad can their church actually be? Well, the first thing to realise here, and this is very important, and that is the truth matters. He, is, he considers the truth is important and he thinks it is right for us to discuss and challenge each other on doctrine and ethics. And that is exactly what he's doing here in this letter. He tells them that you need to be in harmony with one another. And then straight away he goes on to tell them all the things that they need to change. He's not saying... You should ignore all those divisive doctrines and just just love one another. He's not saying you need to care less about those differing views and just talk about things that you just naturally agree about. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying that because the truth matters. And in fact, in a few chapters' time, he will say, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Paul is not just saying, don't worry about those tricky issues, just be nice to one another. Far from the truth. He wants to cause a division amongst them by dividing out this person who is sexually immoral. He is not pursuing unity at the expense of truth. He is pursuing truth and godliness. And so we too will will pursue truth, even if it causes divisions. Because as he taught in his second letter to Timothy, our leaders must preach the word, be prepared whether the time is favourable or not, Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. We've got to live in harmony, but not at the expense of truth. And that's why it's right for us to debate matters of biblical teaching, even if it causes divided opinions. For as I preach the word, it will involve correcting and rebuking. And that will potentially divide our church. And even though I really love unity and I really love peace and I really love to avoid conflict, let me assure you, I need to follow my calling. And that means that as your pastor, I will tell you what I think the Bible says and I'll do it even if some of you don't agree with what I say. I love harmony. But I know that our harmony needs to be in unity, in the truth. But sometimes there can be unity in the truth and yet also divisions. And our divisions can be, in fact, character-based. Our divisions can be character-based. It might be as simple as cliques. You know, you, it might be that everybody basically agrees about basically everything, but you just hang out with just your people and my people. And, you know, one growth group or Bible study might have, you know, 
brunch together and they always have it together and then the other one has theirs over there and the other rest of the people who haven't really joined one yet sort of feel on their own. I don't see that happening, but that's the kind of thing that could happen. Uh, it's an example of a church that could have the same truth but is still divided, even though they have that, that unity in what they believe. In that situation, the word of God is very clear, verse 10b, let there be no divisions in the church. Because on the one hand, we are to live in harmony, and on the other hand, we are to avoid divisions. We are to be people that don't take sides, that are not divided, who pursue unity whenever we can. And this is how it looks, 10c. Be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. We've got to be strongly connected to each other. In fact, the word in the original language there was, is it's the same word that doctors use to describe a broken bone that was healed. Something that was divided and shattered and damaged comes together and is reset and is strong. That is what we are supposed to be like. We are supposed to be strong and united. We're supposed to be strong and united in thought and purpose. We're supposed to have a oneness amongst ourselves. We'll work towards the good of each other. We'll be united in thought and purpose because that's what Christians should be like. United we stand and divided we fall. And so we want to stand united so that our church will be as one when the world looks on. And that will mean that we will be prepared to give up things that we cherish in order to pursue unity. Now, I'm not saying that we'll ignore controversial theological issues and we'll just talk about nice and positive things. That is not loving. And it's not what Paul has done as he's written this fairly full-on letter to the church at Corinth. But as they speak the truth in love, he wants them to pursue unity. And that's, of course, what God wants for all of us here today as well. But before we think about our own church situation, which I intend to spend a little time doing a bit later on, let's see what it is that the Apostle Paul says they were doing in Corinth. Verse 11, he says, For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Uh, this woman, Chloe, uh, she, through her household, have informed Paul about the quarrels, and the deal is that they've got divisions and disputes amongst themselves. There's infighting. It's a big problem. That's why he's writing, amongst other things. And this is how he describes it. He says, verse 12, Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos. Or, I follow Peter. Or, oh, I follow only Christ. They've divided into different factions. Instead of enjoying unity, they've split into different groups, each following a different famous leader in the church. It seems to me a little bit like what happens when a political party needs to elect a new leader. You know, those photographs down, you know, the, the images of Parliament House, and as they walk into the party room to have their vote on who they're going to be having as the next leader of the Liberal Party or whatever, you know, you'll see Malcolm Turnbull walking down there with his army of 20 people, all walking sort of shoulder to shoulder into the party room, which is then closed off and you don't know who voted for what. And then a little bit later on, there'll be a few stragglers. And then after that... Down comes ScoMo with his army and, and then they go in and they're kind of, all of them following one leader or another leader and they're divided. And then miraculously when they come out they say, 
we've elected a new leader and we're all united. You think, yeah, really? <laughs> but this idea of walking down the corridors with different leaders, that's sort of a little bit like what the church has become. You know, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Peter, or you know, I'm just with Jesus. They are divided according to their leader. And they're fighting with each other because they're divided in their leadership. It's a real mess. Just when the church of Corinth could have been united as one with a healthy face to the world, they've split up into all these different factions. But ironically, it's actually a very Corinthian thing to do, what the church here in Corinth has done. Uh, they were really on about the cult of leadership. That was a big Corinthian thing in the nation, in, 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 in the township. They loved to worship a leader and they would divide accordingly. It wasn't weird at all, in a sense. Quite worldly, and yet not as weird. It's a little bit like they're all mad footy fans. A whole bunch of people who, who love to follow, say, rugby league, and they all turn up when they see each other in, in their different colours and their different jerseys, and you see them on a Monday morning, and you can basically tell what happened on the weekend for their team by the face that they show you. How was the weekend? Oh. Uh, how was it? Ah, you know, and they are disunited by their individual teams. They're disunited by their different leaders. It's kind of the way that it worked in Corinth. They had all of the different leaders that they would follow, like we would follow different sporting teams. Now, we don't see at the team kind of thing following different teams as being negative. We see it's quite healthy. But imagine if our church was like that. Imagine more broadly our church was like that, you know. Oh, I'm a kind of person that follows that guy or I follow this guy, you know. Uh, you know, a little bit like, you know, so, well, you know, we're, we're all reading the, the Apollos blog at the moment and, and, oh, yeah, you're listening to the Paul podcast. Yeah, well, you know, you're a Paul kind of person, but, you know, uh, I'm not so sure about that. We're, we're about with, with Kephas, we're with, with Peter and there's that division there and that worldliness has shaped their behaviour. The way of the world has made its way into the church. And so instead of following different teams, they follow different leaders, leaders who weren't even members of their church, of course. They're divided over identities. And that is a worldly way to live, and it needs to stop. And the reason that that is because of the nature of Jesus. Verse 13a. Has Christ been divided into factions? Is Christ divided? Well, of course not. He's just one. Although it's actually possible that with this rhetorical question that doesn't give you an answer, some people think you might say, well, actually, yes, he has. Because have a look at what's happened in Corinth. The one body of Christ has been split up to all these factions. But no matter whether you say it's a yes or a no, the point is that Christ is one. He is united. And so we should be too. Then Paul asks them, 13b, was I, Paul, crucified for you which of course the answer is no because it was Jesus who was crucified of course and if Paul was crucified he wouldn't be around to ask the question but as Paul makes this obvious point it's interesting to note that we've got a, a, a very simple reminder of what it means for Jesus to be crucified what is it Paul crucified for you Jesus was crucified for you it shows us again the reason that Jesus was crucified. He was crucified for us. Anyway, he then goes on to ask a third question. He says, were any of you baptised in the name of Paul? Of course not. When they were baptised, they were baptised in the name of Jesus, 
not the name of anyone else. It's all about Jesus. Church is all about Jesus. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise. It's pretty duh, obvious. But, well, we need to be reminded, as did they. He wants the Corinthians to realise that the Church of Christ is a church that is about Christ. Not about Peter, not about Paul, not about Paulus. And so dividing over different leaders is ridiculous because there's only one leader that matters and that's Jesus. There's only one leader who unites and that's Jesus. They naturally wanted to split into all these different leadership cults because that's what they did in Corinth. They had different leaders, special leaders and supported them, but that's not the way the church should be. It needs to be all about Jesus, not about Jesus's leaders. Now, that's not to say that Jesus' leaders are irrelevant. Uh, the Lord has given us pastors to pastor us, and it's right to respect our leaders. As we read in Hebrews 13, remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that's come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. Uh, there's a place to follow the leaders that God has given us. There's a valid reason for us to follow a Christian leader, but not to become all factional and clicky based on our allegiances. I mean, there are, there are all sorts of reasons why we'll have a soft spot for a particular leader. They, maybe they're the person who shared with you how to become a follower of Jesus and prayed with you. And I, well, that's a very significant thing. Maybe they're the one who conducted your marriage service or the one who baptised you. Well, it turns out for the people in Corinth, that was a big thing for them. It was actually who baptised you was sort of the way that the one through whom you would have allegiance in a special way. And that is why Paul says this next interesting verse from verse 14 to 16. He says, I, Paul, thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, for now no one can say they were baptised in my name. Oh, yeah. Uh, I also baptised the household of Stephanus, but uh, I don't remember baptising anyone else. <laughs> it, it's a very human book, isn't it, the Bible? You know, it's, it's God's word. And Paul's talking and his scribes there, like, you know, I'm just writing this down. Yeah, uh, can you, have you got some tip X? No, I, I just will write it down then. And, and we've got it all in front of us 2,000 years later with his umming and ahhing. But the point is with all of this is for him, the ministry of baptism wasn't a huge thing. You see that? He's not saying that baptism isn't important, of course, but he's showing that it might not be quite as important as some people say. After all, he's been 18 months there in Corinth and he baptised two people plus the household of Stephanus when he remembers it. You know, it's got not a whole lot of people. It wasn't a big core business in that sense. Now, why is that? Well, he didn't want to be seen to have favourites. But maybe there's more than that. Maybe it's because he wanted to make sure they focused on something more important than baptism. And so he goes on to say, For Christ didn't send me to baptise, but to preach the good news. <laughs> See, the most important thing is to preach the good news because that's his mission, to tell people about Jesus. That's how God works. I mean, baptism is great. It's a wonderful gift from God to show a visible sign of being in God's family. It's a great blessing. It's something that we should all eagerly encourage. But evangelism is more important than baptising because if you got saved just by someone sprinkling water on you, then I'd go and grab the fire truck and go around and just start, hey, revival in Jamboree. You know, it doesn't work that way, of course. Speaking the good news about Jesus matters more than baptising people. And that's what 
the people. That's what Paul wanted the people in Corinth to remember, especially if they were getting all clicky about who baptised them. Oh, I got baptised by Apollos. Oh, you think that's good? I got baptised by Peter. Oh, really? Oh, I see you're Peter. I raise your Paul. Okay. Well, I got baptised by Jesus. No, actually, I didn't. That doesn't work. Anyway, you see, it was divided by the whole baptism thing, but Paul won't play that game. His one job is to preach the good news of Jesus, but just to continue to be controversial, he speaks it in a fairly unusual way, a special kind of way, a special kind of unspecial kind of way. He says, and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Paul was very un-Corinthian the way that he did his preaching. Uh, they were all about clever speech. They were all about wisdom and eloquence. They had fancy words, fancy techniques, but Paul would not have a bar of it. He chose to avoid clever speech and he did that because he wanted to make sure the message of the cross of Christ wouldn't lose its power he wanted the evangelism to be shocking after all our executed God is a shocking message it's the brutal and humiliating crucifixion of Christ and he didn't want to add any spin to it he wanted to make sure that the followers of Jesus knew that they follow in the footsteps of a rejected and a humiliated leader and that the weakness of the cross was the power of God. And that's exactly what he'll go on to talk about in verses 18 to the end of the chapter, which is what we're looking at next week, so please come back. But for now, we need to see that Paul would not buy into all the fancy words and fancy techniques that might somehow soften the blow of the cross. And that is because, rightly so, we know that the message shapes the method. If the message is about the shock of the humiliated Christ, it's going to mean that the way that you speak about the humiliated Christ will be in a, in a, in a consistent way. Because you can't ultimately tell someone about the good news about Jesus without the hearer being shocked. Shocked that Jesus died. Shocked that our king was executed. Shocked that he was humiliated. Because when we know that our leader was known by his humiliation, it's got to make us stop and double take when we see people talk about Christianity with no cross. And no suffering, and no atonement, and no need for Jesus to save us from our sins and rescue us from hell. Well, that's how this section ends. And before I finish, I just want to say a little bit about unity and about our church. Because as I said before, I'm not preaching this sermon on unity because I think our church is not united. I'm just preaching it because it's the next little bit of 1 Corinthians and we're going on this 32-week journey. Let's buckle up and off we go, kids. But I've got to say, I think this is possibly the most united church I've ever been in in any part of my life. And I, as I said before, and I think that our united church is a gift from God. It's not socially engineered that way. It's just a blessing of God and a, something for us to delight in. But, you know, we don't agree about everything here. I'm aware of many different issues in our church where you might have a different view to the person sitting next to you. You may have a different view about things to me. 
One of those issues is the age of the earth. Let's get controversial on a few things here. Uh, some of you believe the earth is 6,000 years old and some of you believe it's over 4 billion years old. It can't be both. One of you is right and it's good to talk about. But it's not good to divide about. Wise and godly Bible-believing Christians have convictions about each of those differing views and both can't be right. But it's not worth being divided about as a church. Another issue is whether women should preach in church to mixed congregations. Some of you believe it's a good thing and some of us believe it's a bad thing. One of us is right and it's good to talk about. But it's not good to divide about. Wise and godly Bible-believing Christians can have convictions about each of those differing views and we can't both be right. But unlike discussions about the age of the earth, our church actually needs to act one way or the other. And ultimately the decision has to be made by the senior minister. As most of you would know, I believe that God has made men and women equal and different. Equal in value and different in some roles, including marriage and the church. And I believe that God has given only men the role of preaching to mixed congregations. And I've not come to that conclusion lightly or hastily. But it is the position I believe to be right and it's the position I hold and it's the position and practice that our church adopts. Now some of you disagree with me on that and you are in very good company. There are many Christian leaders who hold the view that there should be little or no restriction on women preaching to mixed congregations. What's more, many of my valued ministry friends, including those, especially those in the GAFCON movement, have different views on this. Some of them are women preachers, some of them are women priests. And I joyfully serve alongside them in my leadership role in GAFCON. But even though we see differently on this issue, it's not something that should divide us. And that is also the case here in our church. Some of you differ with me on this view, but it doesn't mean that we can't be in warm, deep fellowship with each other in our church. And it certainly doesn't mean that we need to be divided on this issue. And I've got to say for the record, I don't think we are divided on this issue. Our church is not divided about this, even though not every single person holds exactly the same view. And why is that the case? It's because we've taken the word of God seriously. We hold different views, but we're not divided. And that is a beautiful thing. And I honour that, that deeply, that in you, you love and lovingly disagree with me in such a way that does not divide our church. But there are other issues that may need to bring about a divide in our church. Some issues do need to divide a church. This is what Paul modelled as he ministered to the early church. In fact, most of his letter to the church in Galatians was about an issue just like that. And it was the whole issue about the need for Christian men to follow the Old Testament tradition of circumcision. And this is how Paul spoke of that in Galatians 1. He said, I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ you are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but it's not the good news, it's not the gospel at all. 
You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of gospel, a good news, than the one we preached to you. There is a need for there to be a division when the truth about Jesus is twisted. There's a need to break fellowship when false doctrine about God is taught. Because in the end, truth about Jesus matters more than unity. Because it's only by the true, authentic good news of Jesus that we can know the power of the cross of Christ to save us from our sins and reconcile us with God. Friends, in all of this, we need to keep praying for wisdom. And we need to keep praying for love. When it was announced that there was the establishment of the Diocese of the Southern Cross back in August, it was with some sadness. We didn't want to rejoice in the need for faithful Orthodox Anglicans to have to leave their church buildings and their diocese and join a new diocese. But the truth of the gospel really matters. People like our dear friends Cameron and Alex have been, have been kicked out of the Anglican Church of Ireland because they're Bible-believing Christians. And that's why we need churches like ours to support them and their ministry and others like them. And that is because the authentic good news of Jesus is the only way that a person can know the power of the cross of Christ to save them from their sins and bring them to God. And as we pursue the truth for the sake of the gospel and for the need to rescue souls from hell, we also need to pursue unity amongst those who hold to the one true gospel of Jesus. And as those who share the love of the good news, may we be people who share in a deep love for each other. Even as we disagree about some things, we need to pray for wisdom and we need to pray for love. And I might do that now. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus died for us. And we thank you for the truth of that message. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to be united in that truth and that you would lead us to support those who have been affected by those who have rejected them because of that truth. We, Lord, ask for great wisdom for us to discern issues in which we need to divide and pray that you would help us to be united on those things that don't need to divide us. Give us that wisdom, we pray. And in all of this, Lord, we pray also that you might grant us deep love, a deep love for each other, even as we disagree about some things. May we be known as a church that loves each other deeply, that is united in Christ. And for your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.